Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Barbecue is one of the most popular cuisines in the U.S., but many of those who helped establish this hallmark culinary style aren't part of the current conversation. On today's show, we explore Colorado's barbecue history and the effort to restore the voices and contributions of Black Americans to the narrative. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. At this time last year, firefighters were just over a month into fighting the Cameron Peak wildfire west of Fort Collins. At more than 208,000 acres, it's the largest fire in state history, and full containment didn't come until December 2nd. As KUNC's Alex Hager reports, for the people in charge of protecting the area's water, the work is only getting started. Randy Gustafson is watching helicopters zip back and forth over the Cameron Peak burn scar. They're hooking the net back up, and in a matter of seconds, he's up and out. Instead of scooping up water to drop on flames, the pilots are picking up bulging nets full of wood mulch to scatter over the charred hillsides from the 2020 fire. I'm kind of used to it, and I still, it's just the kid in you comes out watching this. Gustafson works for the city of Greeley. And even though Greeley is a two-hour drive away, this is where the city's water comes from. Snowmelt and rain make their way down from the foothills into the Cashlapooter River before that water is piped over to the city. But when that rain falls on a burn scar... It's like a frying pan. It's slick. It'll, uh, the water will run. As the water runs off of it, it'll collect. As it collects... Uh, debris, everything else, it just builds up onto itself, moving through there. So what this does is it'll set down and stabilize the soil. These golden shards of wood, about three inches long, they help hold that dirt in place and keep it out of the runoff. And they're just one part of the city's strategy to keep the water clean. Another effort is underway above Chambers Lake, where the fire started. Big bundles of spongy wood shavings held together by biodegradable nets are laid out on the hillside. They form a baffle and they stop, they collect, as you can see right here, the uh, debris, soil, ash, and keep it from coming down into the, directly into the reservoir. Right now, they are holding back sludgy piles of gray dirt in one of the most severely burned parts of the Cameron Peak fire. This makes it worth it. This makes what we're doing worth it. I mean, this is a microscopic portion of what we have, but it worked, and it stopped the bleeding, and it's yeah, this does. This this gets me amped up. But in the grand scheme of things, all this work could just be a band-aid with climate change making things worse. These mega fires, unfortunately, um, are not going to be going anywhere anytime soon. Hallie Streavy directs the Coalition for the Poudre River Watershed. She says that means a lot more work for recovery and prevention around this fire and others like it across the West. 
you know, we're, we're trying not to lose hope. I think there's still plenty of things that we can do working together collaboratively. That includes precautionary forest management in areas prone to burn. And the fact that it's carried out by a watershed group is just more proof of how connected this all is. Even after a fire burns, it takes a lot of work to keep the water clean. But a restoration project like this one is not cheap. Keeping just one helicopter in the air costs $87 every minute. And this work has been going on for months. Greeley's Deputy Water Director Adam Jokerst says it's worth it for two reasons. One is to protect the public. Mulching and other erosion control structures uh, reduce flooding and protect life and property. And the second reason is water quality. How much is clean, pure mountain water worth? Jokers said Greeley gets the best bang for its buck from aerial mulching, but they might not have enough money to cover as many acres as they'd like to. What's most critical for us right now um, is lack of funding. We are um, we're spending roughly $300,000 a day, so we go through funding very quickly. And with a long list of tasks to protect more of the watershed, Jokerst says they could use more help, whether that's from the state or from federal infrastructure spending. And he'd like to see more permanent funds set aside for this type of work. Randy Gustafson would too, especially since fires like this are getting stronger and more frequent. The last 10 years, I've had two major fires, and both of them are the most severe fires we've had. This is the biggest fire in Colorado. And yeah, this is not... And this, I see this as continuing until the forests are completely, we have nothing left to burn. Greeley's water team says restoration work will carry into the next few years, but because of the size and severity of the burn, it'll never truly be fixed. Alex Hager, KUNC. Last weekend, a team of volunteers planted more than 400 trees in the Cameron Peak burn scar. It's a small step in helping bring some green back to an area left mostly barren. But some areas never stopped being lush with plants, even through the worst of the burning. Tomorrow, we'll hear about how some non-human creatures played a role in preventing the worst effects of the fire. Autumn starts on Wednesday, and that means it will soon be time to say goodbye to another barbecue season in Colorado. But before those flames die out for the year, we wanted to bring you a conversation with local author and soul food scholar Adrian Miller. Miller is a certified barbecue judge, yes, that's a thing, and a recipient of a James Beard Foundation Book Award. His most recent book, Black Smoke, is intended to celebrate African-American barbecue culture and to restore the voices of Black Americans to barbecue storytelling in the U.S. And what better way to share barbecue stories than over a plate of smoked meat and savory sides? I took Colorado Edition producers Ray Solomon and Tess Novotny with me to meet Adrian for lunch recently at Nordy's Barbecue and Grill, a family-owned restaurant in Loveland. We talked about cooking styles and the history and culture of barbecue. Yay. Okay. A couple questions. Can I get you anything to drink besides water? Oh. um, How about sweet tea? Sweet tea. You know what? Yeah. Sweet tea. Two sweet teas. So we were wondering, can we get the feast for two but have everything? Is that possible? I can do brisket and pork and then roasted chicken and barbecue chicken and smoked sausage and hot wings. Yeah, yeah. So if we can get just a little bit of everything. Okay, so beans, corn fritters, and then mac and cheese? Yeah. Because it's interesting. Mac and cheese has become a barbecue side dish. It's, I don't think it was that way like 25 years ago. But. 
As we wait for the food to get here, can we start by talking about where barbecue comes from? What are the origins of this cooking method? Yeah, so you have to understand that barbecue history is hazy because um, it's just not well documented. So the major players when it comes to barbecue are Native Americans, so indigenous people in the Americas, uh, Europeans, often colonizers, and explorers and colonizers, and then enslaved Africans, later enslaved African Americans. So of those three major groups of people who are in play, only one has a literary tradition. Everybody else is oral histories. So it's hard to get to know what happened 400, 500 years ago. So the earliest written account we get of barbecue is Columbus and crew arriving in the Caribbean in the early 1490s, and they see the indigenous people on an island doing a type of cooking that they'd never really seen before. And it was cooking a mixture of vegetables, fish, and iguanas on a raised platform made out of green sticks over very slow fire. So what barbecue, the word barbecue comes from it's like a, a historical game of telephone. You remember <laughs> sure. playing telephone? I okay. do. Yep, yep. So, Spanish called this barbacoa, and barbacoa was an approximation of what the indigenous people were calling the raised platform that the food was cooked on. So it wasn't the food or the process. It was the equipment. It was the equipment. And you see those raised platforms throughout the Americas, okay? Okay. So even in the American South and then going to South America, okay? You see this raised platform all over the place. So English barbecue is an approximation of barbacoa. Gotcha. So whatever the Taiano Indians were saying, the Native Americans became barbacoa and then it became barbecue in English. And so then how did this, um, what you know, was equipment and a way to cook certain foods, how did that um, become entwined with the African Americans? So um, that's where things are kind of, we just don't know for sure, but this is what we do know. Often when Native Americans were doing what we call barbecue in the early days, it was more about preservation than immediate consumption. So they were kind of smoking meats to hang on to them for a long time. Europeans were used to faster cooking techniques like grilling and roasting. And so this very slow type of cooking gets merged with this very fast type of cooking. So you get an intermediate type of cooking. That's what we call barbecue. So then enslaved Africans get in the mix because they come with their own smoking traditions and this all gets mingled up together and eventually by the time we get to the late 1600s and 1700s, barbecue meant cooking whole animals. They could be a pig, a cow, sheep. If they did a cow, they would quarter it because cows are just too big. Um, sheep, possum, whatever, whole animals. And then you would butterfly them and stick rods through the sides of them and then cook them over this pit filled with hardwood burning coals. Now, the reason why African Americans get thrown in the mix is because this type of barbecue is very hard work. And the racial dynamics of the antebellum South is if you wanted someone to do hard work and not pay them, you had enslaved Africans and later enslaved African Americans do them. And then enslaved African Americans get associated with barbecue because it's scalable. So by the time we're in the mid 1700s, you're having huge barbecues for hundreds of people and thousands of people. Barbecue started off as a small thing. You know, people getting together to shoot some guns, play cards, tell stories, you know, lies, that kind of thing. Um, and then there were social events. But then barbecue, because it's scalable, starts to become part of civic culture. So almost any celebration, 4th of July, completing some civic public works project would be celebrated with a barbecue. And as long as you had enough land and enough labor and enough food, you can do a barbecue for thousands of people. 
there's reasons why you don't see barbecues for, uh, or sorry, you don't see um, fried chicken dinners for 10,000 people in newspaper articles because it would be a logistical nightmare, right? But you can do barbecue. And by the 1820s, we're seeing barbecues for 50,000 people being reported. That's the first part of our conversation with food historian Adrian Miller, author of the new book, Black Smoke, African Americans and the United States of Barbecue. In just a moment, we'll get our food and learn more about African American barbecue culture, including some fascinating stories from Colorado's rich and smoky barbecue history. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. I recently had the chance to enjoy lunch and conversation with author and food historian Adrian Miller at Nordy's Barbecue and Grill in Loveland. We spoke about his new book, Black Smoke, African Americans, and the United States of Barbecue. This part of our discussion starts with plates of food arriving at our table. Do you want to take one of these plates? So why don't you get a little bit of meat? Okay, so I'll just take one of these toast things. This seems like a good time to kind of talk about why you wrote your most recent book, Black Smoke. Um, It's kind of about bringing back the voices of African Americans to this story. Yeah, so um, when I was first writing my book on the history of soul food, I thought I was going to have a chapter on barbecue in the book, but then I, I got so much information, I thought, you know what, this needs its own treatment. So I just started paying attention to storytelling about barbecue. And I think the pivotal moment was I was watching the Food Network and there was an episode, um, it was a special show called Paula Deen's Southern Barbecue. And um, the show which featured the top personalities, figures, restaurants in Southern Barbecue did not feature any African Americans. Not one? Not one. And so I thought, well, first of all, how does this even happen? And then the second thing I thought is, well, maybe I got it twisted. Maybe it was Paula Deen's Scandinavian barbecue and I just didn't pay close attention to the, the commercials. So then I just started looking at other TV shows, magazines, newspapers, and it was the same problem. African Americans were either um, bit players in the barbecue story or left out completely. So Black Smoke was a response to that, and it was essentially um, a celebration of African American barbecue culture and a restoration of African Americans to barbecue storytelling. Um, well, I did want to ask you about this because we, you know, we know about regional differences in barbecue. I mean, there's Memphis and Kansas City, and I don't know where else. But there and 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 rivalries too. Um, but you actually talk about an African American aesthetic to barbecue. Can you explain a bit more about what you mean? Yeah. So people might ask me, okay, look, you're writing this book. So what's the? I, I started one of my chapters with an anecdote from John Grisham. Please share. Yeah. So we were at this event. And, you know, when he heard about what my book's about, he was a little incredulous. Uh, And he said, okay, so what's the difference between white barbecue and black barbecue? And I said, black barbecue tastes better. Uh, And then, you know, if you ask me to elaborate, uh, he he cracked up. He was nonplussed, and actually everybody else in the audience just cracked up, but I held him speechless for a second. So... um, I would say that it's, it's in the preparation. So in African-American barbecue circles, it's typically more direct cooking. So that means cooking above the heat source at a higher temperature, at least to start out and then maybe going at a lower temperature. So when you often hear about barbecue, you hear low and slow. That means cooking over low heat for a long period of time. So African-American um, barbecue is going to be more that direct cooking. So that means it's going to be a little more char on the meat. Um, it's gonna have it's gonna have a little tug to it. 
Um, African-American barbecue usually features pork spare ribs, pork shoulder, chicken, and a type of spicy sausage called hot links. So, you know, there are regional differences, but overall, you're not going to see a lot of beef in an African-American run barbecue joint. One thing that has definitely been a shift in barbecue culture, as there's been a movement away from, say, African-American forms of barbecue, and one thing I would say that I forgot to mention earlier is definitely a part of the African-American barbecue aesthetic is having sauce on your barbecue. So there's a growing... With the shift away from kind of uh, African-American forms of barbecue, there's been a de-emphasis on sauce. Okay. So more and more people are like, oh, good barbecue shouldn't be sauce. You should just be able to taste the meat. Okay. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say most African-Americans would respond to that saying, says who? Um, it's all about the sauce. Yeah, I've been to places where you get served your barbecue, and it's just a the plate is an ocean of sauce with little islands of meat poking through. That's how important sauce is. I don't know, maybe we should start with the rib. Is there a side? Okay. Nope, you can take I'm, any side. Okay. Look, wait, 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 slow down. Oh. Okay, this is oh. an experience. So look at it, look I, at it lovingly. I look at it lovingly. All right, now you so focus on the center. Okay. Yep, you take your bite. Okay. So see how the whole thing didn't slip off, so yeah. that's a good sign. Did you get all the way to the bone? Can I get baked beef today, please? I want to ask about some of the legendary figures in barbecue and I'm talking 1800s I was in your book really captivated by Columbus B Hill Uh, he did some very large barbecues for some pretty high profile people can you talk about Columbus B Hill yeah Columbus B Hill he's just one of the my favorite characters to find so uh, he's from West Tennessee he arrives in Denver in the late 1870s and so he gets here, and then, you know, by the early 1800, or 1880s, he's doing barbecues for uh, like two to 3,000 people. So in 1882, there was this really popular barbecue called the Denver Merchants Barbecue. Okay. And then another milestone is when the cornerstone laying ceremony was held for our state capitol on July 4th, 1890. He did a barbecue for 25,000 people in Lincoln Park, so right, you know, at the base of the capitol. Yeah. Well, you talked about barbecue being scalable, so this... Clearly. <laughs> so also in the 1890s, in the Greeley area, they would have potato days, which is still celebrated today. But often they would do a lamb barbecue. And so uh, there were newspaper articles about him presiding over barbecues in the 1890s. And 10,000 people showing up for those barbecues. Um, but his most famous slash infamous barbecue was for the 1898 stock show. January 1898. And this would have been in Denver. It was in Denver. So surprise, surprise, the future of the stock show was in doubt at that time. <laughs> Some things never change. Wow. Right. And so the Denver Stock Growers Association decided to have this VIP barbecue. Okay. So they were going to, you know, just like put on a nice spread for all of these people. And, and hopefully that would secure the stock show's future. So um, word got out in Lodo which was the seedy part of town then. Okay. And so 30,000 people showed up for this 5,000-person barbecue. Oof. So they were, there was a lot of clamoring. There's some pictures of this, actually, um, black and white photos from this. Some people took pictures of that. But a lot of it was illustrated. Mm-hmm. And so um, somebody got the wild and crazy idea that they could chill out people by giving out free beer from the Zang Brewery that was nearby. And that didn't go over so well. And the governor of Colorado and the mayor of Denver at that time got on a bandstand trying to chill people out because they were really agitated. And they got 
pelted with food and other things, and so they had to get off the bandstand. And then as, as, there was a full-on food riot. Wow. I mean, women and children weeping, fights breaking out, is, and it's illustrated in the newspapers of the time. So um, for, I think unfairly, Columbus B. Hill gets blamed for this. And so his reputation takes a hit, but he's still doing barbecues in the black community on a regular basis in the years following. The last big barbecue that he does is in the mid-aughts, 19-aughts. He does, he's put on a train to Seattle to cook a barbecue for the Pacific Fleet. Wow. So he okay. does a barbecue for uh, like several thousand people. Yeah, so um, he has a comeback moment. He has a comeback moment. But yeah, legendary figure. Um, and in newspapers at the time, he was celebrated as one of the, the best barbecue men in the West. Was that unusual to, you know, for newspapers to write so glowingly about an African-American? Oh, absolutely. Time? Most newspapers of the time didn't even take the moment to, you know, take the opportunity to interview African-Americans. They were talked about, but never really interviewed. But... Um, the food co- the coverage changes over the years. So in the early 19th century, barbecue reporting was like, oh, barbecue was held on this day. This is what they ate. This is these were the hosts. Here's how many people attended. Over time, they start paying more attention to the food served, and then they start interviewing the cooks. And because African Americans so dominated barbecue, we get a sense of these personalities who were involved in this cuisine. And it really is until the 1890s that you see more and more white men. Getting involved, there were certainly white men who were barbecuing before, but in terms of getting press coverage, really doesn't start happening until the 1890s. And I'm so glad that they reported on what was served at these giant barbecues because I think it was so interesting and so different what they served back then. Yeah, well, even for that time when he did that stock show barbecue, that that was, I mean, they had uh, not only the traditional pork, beef, goats, lamb, but they had possum, they had Rocky Mountain sheep, they had elk, they had a bison. I mean, that was a crazy menu. And have you ever had possum? I have not had possum. I really want to try it. That's not something you're going to hear from a lot of people. (laughs) I want to talk about another Colorado barbecue legend, and that's Daddy Bruce Randolph. What can you tell us about him? Yeah, so Daddy Bruce Randolph was born in 1900 in Pastoria, Arkansas, and um, had a very interesting life, but makes his way to Denver in the early 60s and uh, decides to run a barbecue joint and manages to secure the funds to do that. And then um, he was a person of deep faith, and although he was never ordained as clergy, he would certainly try to live his life out as a person of faith. And so he started this tradition of feeding people on Thanksgiving Day, giving a free meal. And in short order, he's feeding thousands of people. At the height of this tradition, he was feeding 10,000 people. And he was written up in newspapers all over the place. So I wanted to write about him in my uh, chapter on church barbecue just to show how there's like a little bit of an intersection. We've been talking about regional differences in barbecue. Is there a Colorado style of barbecue that's distinctive? There used to be, but we have let it slip. So, you know, 50 years ago, we were known for lamb and bison. In fact, if you went to a knowledgeable butcher and asked for a a Denver rack, you're gonna get a rack of lamb ribs. And so that's how much we were associated with lamb. In fact, uh, chefs around the world, they perk up when they hear Colorado lamb, as much as they perk up when they hear New Zealand lamb. So that's the reputation that we have. So um, we were known for lamb and bison, and there, there were regularly lamb barbecue contests in the, in the mountains. They were called the High Country Lamb Cook-Off. Um, and, and the interesting thing is, like, a lot of those competitors were Basque 
people of Basque heritage because there were Basque sheep herders that settled in the mountains. So that was an interesting culture. But I don't think that contest exists anymore. Um, and then bison never took hold. And, and bison is tricky to barbecue because it's a lean meat. So you have to know what you're doing in order to do that. So um, we've gotten away from it. Um, there's only one barbecue joint in Denver that I know of that regularly cooks both bison and lamb. It's called Roaming Buffalo Barbecue. And they're doing Colorado barbecue. So I wish more places would do that. And so um, one of my projects that I'm working on is I'm trying to enlist a whole bunch of people so that we can have a contest to create a signature Colorado barbecue dish involving lamb and or bison. And Adrian, I want to wrap up just by asking you, what do you want people to know in this effort to bring African-American voices back into the conversation and back into the culture around barbecue? The main things I want people to know is that barbecue, as we understand it, is Native American in origin. And that at some point, that culinary heritage was passed on to African-Americans. And that African-Americans, for a couple of centuries, were barbecue's indispensable cooks. So I want people to understand just the influence that African-Americans have had and that how pervasive it is. And if you're going to talk about barbecue in the United States, you've got to include African-Americans. To do anything else is just whack. Writer, attorney, certified barbecue judge, Adrian Miller, thank you so much for having lunch and thank you for talking with us. You're welcome. Good to be with you. Good to sup with you. That was author, soul food historian, and certified barbecue judge Adrian Miller. His newest book is called Black Smoke African Americans and the United States of Barbecue. That's our show for today. Next time on Colorado Edition, more people are getting outdoors for things like fishing and hiking, but not all feel as welcome in the public lands they pay for. Efforts are in place to change that for everyone, including Hispanic and Latinx Coloradans, a group that has been historically underrepresented in the outdoors. We'll speak with three Coloradans working to empower us all to enjoy our public lands. Be sure to join us for that conversation in tomorrow's show. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Alana Schreiber. Ray Solomon and Tess Novotny produced our conversation with author Adrian Miller. Our digital editor is Jackie High, and Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.